I want to turn to Matthew chapter number 26. And we have a record in this chapter of the institution of the Lord's Supper. It is that that I would call your attention to now as we read the Word of God and I will try to work our way to that particular uh, portion of the Scripture and make some comment on that uh, this morning as we prepare our minds and hearts to receive of the Lord's table today. Matthew chapter 26 I'll read now in our hearing verses 26 through 29. May we hear God's Word. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And He took a cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." I do pray the Lord will be pleased to bless His Word and may His people say. If you think back just to last Lord's Day of Matthew 24, verse 36, we considered and made a point of the fact that Jesus in His humanity did not know the time, the hour, or the day of His second coming of the parousia. But, as we look at Matthew chapter 26, the first few verses, the opening verses of this chapter, Jesus did know the time of His death in His humanity. Matthew 26, verse 1, we read, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that would, have be, that would be the Olivet Discourse. Now we are changing scenes as we move into Matthew 26. As He finished these sayings, He said to His disciples, you know, and of course they would have known this, after two days, the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. In two days, I'm going to be killed. Is what Jesus is saying to them. So while on one hand, He says, nobody knows the hour of the coming again, not even the Son of Man. In two days, I will be delivered up to be killed. And Jesus prepared His disciples for His death by progressively teaching them about His death in advance. And actually, 
in the Gospel of Matthew, it goes back at least to Matthew chapter 16, where he verbally starts teaching them. And Matthew records four times that Jesus will tell His disciples, particularly His apostles, but broader than that, four times He will tell them about His pending death. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, He tells them that He will be killed and that He will be resurrected. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, he again refers to his death, and this, this reference seems to have a reference to the fact that he will be betrayed, that his death will be due to the fact that, that there is a betrayer. And then in chapter 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 17 and 19, he tells them that his death will involve Gentiles, and these Gentiles will mock him, they will flog him, and they will crucify him. So he's given more detail. And then we move to chapter 26, where I just read, and he tells them it's going to happen in two days. So Jesus knew where he would die. Matthew 16, it's going to be in Jerusalem. He knew how he would die. Matthew 26, 1, that he would be delivered up to be crucified. He knew when he would die. It's going to be in two days. He knew why he would die in Matthew 26, verse 28, uh, where I read to you from the Lord's uh, Supper, when he institutes the Lord's Supper. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I am dying for the forgiveness of your sins. And he knew what would happen when he died. Again, Matthew 26, verse 31 where he says, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So he knew what was going to happen when he was crucified. They're going to be scattered. Now, if we look at Matthew 26, particularly the first three verses, we would say that the crucifixion is a great mystery of divine providence. Is one way I would... Hand, uh, uh, entitle this first part of 26. Because we would say that the crucifixion of Jesus is due to the wickedness of men. The crucifixion is due to the hatred of men. Verse 3, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So the crucifixion on the one hand is due to the hatred of men. And then if you look down at verse 14, we could also say that the crucifixion is due to the greed and betrayal of a man. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So on one hand, the death of Jesus is due to the evilness, the wickedness, the hatred, the greed of men. But, on the other hand, the crucifixion of Jesus is due to the eternal 
purpose of God. Flip in your Bible over to 2 Timothy. Not too long ago, I tried to preach from this passage, but it's just look at it, just read it, and then move on. Let me get to 2 Timothy. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And we say that the death, we read that the death of Jesus is also due, the crucifixion is also due to the eternal purpose of God. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, talking about Christ, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Before the ages began, it was the purpose of God to save His people. And He chose them in Christ. This was something that Pastor Tyler referenced as he prepared to read 1 Timothy 2. Then we can also say that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is due to the love of God. For God so loved, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would never perish but have everlasting life. So it's the purpose of God. It's the love of God. And then I also would say that it's due to the willing determination of the Son of God. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, this was one of my boy preacher sermons from years and years ago, but it just so struck me. But in Isaiah 50, verse 7, we read, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus sets his face like a flint. I go to I read that from Isaiah of a prophecy, then I move to the New Testament in Luke chapter 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Christ is determined. He knows his death is coming. He begins to tell his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. And there I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be crucified. And yet as that time comes, He sets His face to go to Jerusalem. They even send uh, runners before Him to prepare the way. And one town will not even receive Him because His face is set. He has a determined, I will not be moved from my course. And he's moving toward Jerusalem. And then we also know that even though it is the purpose of the Father, as we look at the covenant of redemption of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's not like the Father twists the Son's arm, but the Son's purpose and will is the Father's purpose and will. And the Son is willing. He's determined, and yet He's willing He willingly lays down His life. By this, John would say in 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that He laid down His life for us. Or again in John's Gospel, 
that he knows his sheep and the shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. No man, he says, takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And so we look at the crucifixion and we go, well, it's due to the hatred of men and yet it's due to the purpose of God, the love of God, the willingness of the Son. But we go beyond that and we look at chapter 26 again in Matthew and we look at verse 2 and it says that He will be delivered up. He's delivered up. What does that mean? Well, in the Greek here, this word can mean betrayed. But a part of the word, didomai, means to give. Like you give a gift to someone. And Jesus is God's gift and Jesus gave Himself. And the crucifixion is a result of the purpose of God, the sovereign will of God. And yet, on the other hand, it's the result of the wickedness of man. And here is the mystery of providence. How can that be? But Peter would say it this way on the day of Pentecost when he preached about the crucifixion of Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And there it is. The sovereignty of God and the wickedness of men. And here it is. And so we start the chapter out with this plot to kill Jesus and in their nefarious planning and plotting the, the, the wickedness of men said, but we don't want to do it during the feast. Ah, but that's the very time that God purposed it. And that's the very time it will happen. Because Jesus had already said, in two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And at this, meanwhile, we have the Sanhedrin planning and plotting. We want to kill Him, but not at that time. And Judas selling him, looking for the opportune time to betray him. And then we move on down to verses 6 through 13, the anointing at Bethany. Now this, this Matthew gives us this account. It's not in chronological order. This, this, this had already happened. This happened before, this happened before the triumphal entry. Um, Mark, we think, probably is the older gospel. It's the shorter gospel. It's written first. Matthew follows Mark's order. And Mark would often use what's often referred to as a sandwich technique. You find that sometime in the Old Testament too. And it's a very interesting literary technique. But 
it's where you have two, sometimes one account of something, a running account of something, and you insert another story in between to, to, make, to make what's being said really stand out and, and, and give you contrast. I think of Mark 5. It's Mark's, he uses it a lot in his gospel. But Mark 5 to me is just one of those standout places where you just really see it. In Mark 5, you've got three miracles recorded. And all those miracles are so representative of sin and what sin does. You've got the, the casting out of the demons of the wild man of Gadara. Nobody could help him. You know, they, they, they've tried everything and he's, a, he's, he's, he's naked and in the tomb screaming and hollering and, and cutting himself and everybody's scared to death of this man. And Christ sails across the sea, goes there and heals, cast out the demons of this one man and sails back. Frees that one man. Nobody could help him. They, they bound him with chains and he broke the chains. I mean, he's, he's a wild man. And then he comes back and when he gets back, He's met on the shores by a man, Jairus or Jairus. He's the, he's the leader of the, of the synagogue. And his daughter is sick. His young daughter is sick unto death. And he's pleading, which was not very... <laughs> Where's his pride? He had no pride. It's gone out the window. He's pleading with Jesus, come to my house for my daughter. And so Jesus is going with him, and here's the sandwich. So as Jesus is going with him, a woman comes up who has an issue of blood. And this, is, this story is interrupted, and you put a piece of meat in between the, the pieces of bread, and you got this story interrupted, and here comes another one. Mark puts another story in here. And you got a woman with the issue of blood. And you, and you go through all of that, and when you finish that, he heals her. And then he picks back up the story of the little girl. And he finishes that one out. But you, then you look, then you can take each one of those, but then you look at the big picture. And you go, well, I got a wild man nobody can help. I got a little girl from a high socioeconomic stat strata. And the, and the reference to sin is she dies. And Ephesians 2, we all have our dead in sins. And then I got a woman who's unclean. And I, then you begin to look at the strata and you look at the, the sandwich and you go, wow, look at what Mark's doing here. He gave us stories. Look at, look at the storyline. Well, you got that here. I got a plot to kill Jesus. On the other side of the plot, I got Judas's chariot. Who wants to sell him? And stuck in between that, out of order, I got the account of Mary who anoints Jesus with precious ointment that's worth about a year's salary. Wow. Hate, hate, and such tender love and devotion and it just brackets it just sets it off for us in such a powerful way and so we have this this account 
of, of Mary who comes to anoint Jesus. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's verse 13. John Legg in his commentary says, These are not mere words of praise for the woman. They tell us this event is important, especially for understanding of the gospel. Now, the disciples object to this. And that objection, no doubt, is led by Judas, as we understand from other gospel accounts. But Jesus regards what Mary has done as a contribution to His work. It's preparatory for His burial. It was the custom to anoint the body of one who was to be buried with ointment. But it was also illegal to anoint an executed criminal, the body of an executed criminal. This is the fourth time we're reading about right here. Now this is out of order. But this is the fourth time Jesus has said, I'm going to be crucified. And we wonder, and again, it's part of this way that Matthew arranges this. You go, where were the disciples? Did they not get it? Did Mary get something by faith they totally missed? And she understands it's now or never. And they, their objection seems laudable. Oh, look what you could look at the good you could have done with that money. But Mary, in an act of devotion and preparation for his burial, Christ said, in an act of wonderful love and faith and devotion anoints the body of Jesus. As believers, well, let me just say that Mary knew that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. She'd already confessed that. She confessed that when Jesus raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. She knew that all of her life and hope was tied up with Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. As believers, we confess that we love Him because He first loved us. And by His love, by His death, His burial, and His resurrection, that we have eternal life. Then if we wanted to just pause and get into that, that scene, we'd have to ask the question, what do we give Him in devotion? What are we willing to give Him in devotion? Do we want to serve Him without cost? That often seems to be the case. We, we seem like we want to run on welfare Christianity. I love Him, but I don't want it to cost me. Well, I want to move on. I'm not going to spend time on verses 17 through 25 and get into the Passover. We could do that, but I want to move on down to 26. He gave us ordinances. I just want you to see the chapter, the movement of the chapter as we get up to verse 26. In John 13:1, we read these words. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world, 
to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Now Jesus knows in two days He's going to die. And Jesus has been progressively preparing His disciples for His death. He's been telling them He's going to Jerusalem to die. But as the time and the hour of His death draws near, He will focus like a laser on His disciples. That's where His focus draws to now, on His disciples. And there will be a flurry of activity on His disciples. And if you read John's Gospel, you'll see there's a concentration of teaching. And that would be John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And we're not going to get all that here in Matthew. But there, Jesus will have, there's a concentration of teaching and He focuses on His disciples. And there is also an encouragement of promises that He gives His disciples just in His teaching. He just heats them up, most especially the promise of the paraclete, of the Holy Spirit. And also there is an institution of ordinance, the Lord's Supper. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why is there this flurry of teaching? Why are there these emphasis on these promises? And why does He institute the Lord's Supper? I just read it to you. Having loved His own, He loved them unto the end. What I want you to see now as we begin to unpack this a little bit more is that what He is doing, He is doing out of love. He knows He's going to the cross. And so out of love for His disciples, He heaps up the teaching. He emphasizes the promises. And He gives them an ordinance, the Lord's Supper. So what is an ordinance? Now, if you don't get anything else today, I want you to get what I just said. I want you to understand the underlying emphasis there. I'm, I'm, I'll move on, but if you've never thought of it before in that way, then you, you're, you've impoverished yourself. He did it out of love. But now let's move on. And I hope that will come clearer as we get into it. What is an ordinance? In our confession, the Lord's Supper is defined as an ordinance. Not just ours, but other confessions. Some that's called a sacrament. I'm not going to get into uh, etymology and debate about words today with you. We can do that some other time. But a definition of an ordinance is an authoritative order or decree. That's just generally speaking, the city ordinance. That's one way you can define it. 
But we're talking about a Christian ordinance. And this is a definition. I think it's a good one. A Christian ordinance is a service, a ceremony, a rite, R-I-T-E, ordained by Christ, which involves tangible elements, water, bread, wine, that is to be observed by the church until He returns again. Now, I don't have the, one of the sermon notes with me, but one of the questions on the sermon notes was something to like, uh, uh, so an ordinance is something that it's, it's uh, voluntary. I think that was the question. Something like that. Personal choice. Personal choice. And, of course, the answer to that is what? False. It is not. Because it is divinely instituted or ordained. It is to be observed in the church until Christ comes again. It's not, oh, I think I will, I think I won't. An ordinance, we confess, there are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, many Baptists hold a what's called a memorial view of the Lord's Supper. And that, that, that is that the Lord's Supper is a memorial of Christ's death. And across the front of many, what's called uh, our table, the table put the elements on, you'll see the words, do this or this do in remembrance of me. And those are good words. But in a memorial view, Christ is physically in heaven. We teach that, I believe that. Christ is right now physically in heaven. In his body. He's physically in heaven. And the argument for the memorial view is that since he's physically in heaven, his body and blood cannot be present here in the elements. So, when we read in Matthew 26, verse 26 and verse 28, this is my body, this is my blood, that's, that's figurative, it's not literal, because his body is in heaven. So we don't go with transubstantiation. So the argument for the memorial view is the supper is a memorial in which we simply remember what Christ did on the cross. It's a memorial. Well, we at EBC confess, yes, the Lord's Supper is to be observed in the church as a perpetual remembrance. That's true. However, it is more. According to our understanding, our confession of faith in the Scriptures, chapter 30 in our confession, paragraph 1, the Lord's Supper is also a confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits we have through Christ's death. It's also for our spiritual nourishment. It's also for our spiritual growth. It's also to strengthen us in our duties that we owe Christ. And it's also a bond and pledge of our communion with Christ and each other. Also, according to chapter 30, verse 7, paragraph 7, worthy receivers when receiving the elements by faith also spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified. Spiritually, we feed upon Christ. And all the benefits of His death and Christ is spiritually present by faith in the ordinance. He's spiritually present. 
even as the elements themselves are to our outward senses. Now this view is called spiritual presence. And in this view, the bread and wine are symbols, but they are not empty symbols. But Christ is spiritually present, and by faith, believers commune with Christ and are benefited by these elements as a means of grace. Now, you hear that term around here a lot, do you not? Means of grace. You've heard that term before. And actually, <clears throat> to be more exact, the phrase usually, most often, is called the ordinary. Ordinary means of grace. Now, what does that mean? Jesus once said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me ask you a question. How are you going to do that? You ever feel like you've at the end of your rope? Do you want to grow in, do you want to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ? How are you going to do that? After telling his disciples that one of them would betray him and that he was going to go away and they could not come with him and they would not see him again, he said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, what if I said to you, Let not your hearts be troubled? You got things bothering you? Well, don't be troubled. Well, how are you going to overcome them? You think your problems are bigger than you? Let not your heart be troubled. As believers, we want to be faithful. And some of us deal with besetting sins. As I recall in our last brotherhood, some of us were very open and frank as we should be. And we confessed there's some things we haven't quite conquered yet. Can you? Can I? Will you? Well, how can I? How can I overcome how can I overcome a besetting sin? In other words, how can I come unto Jesus? How can I grow in the Lord? How can I grow in grace? How do I gain victories in this life? How am I supplied with grace for daily living? And the answer is the ordinary means of Christ. Question 93 of the Baptist Catechism asks this, What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer is, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper and prayer all of which are made effectual to the elect of uh, to the elect for salvation 
Now where can you be sure to find the Lord? Where can you be sure to find the Lord to find rest and help and grace? Where can you be sure to find the Lord? To find grace and help. Historically, where has been referred to as the ordinary means of grace? And that is the Word. That is the public reading and preaching of the Word. The ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And prayer, public corporate prayer. The Lord's chosen means do not restrict His availability, but direct the believer. Now, I, you know, as I thought about that, I was thinking about Numbers 21. You remember in Numbers 21, the people of Israel sinned and God sent serpents to bite the people and many people died. Do you remember God's remedy for that? You remember the remedy? What was it? All right, they made a serpent of brass and they put it on a pole. And then what? If anybody was bitten, what did they have to do? Look at that serpent of brass on the pole. What if you didn't look? And you were bitten. I, the Bible doesn't record this, but I've just, I'm sure you have too. But I've wondered how many people died after that. But you know, what if they'd have put the, what if that, that would have been the remedy, but there'd have been a game of hide and seek? You don't, you don't know, you had no clue where to look. You had no clue. What to do? Well, I, I, I'm here. I've got a here's a here. There's a there is a remedy if you've been bitten, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Just you know, multiple choice. So when we talk about the means of grace, and this is where we know God has given us, where we know where we can find help and grace and strength. We know, and people go, well, that's, it's restricting our ability to God. You go, no, it's not. You know God has given you where to go. And, and the means of grace are like a gushing. They're meant to be a gushing uh, a fountain of mercy for the believer. Where we go when we find rest and help and grace. And they're called ordinary because they're part of our ordinary corporate worship. That's what they're part of. Ordinary. That means they're not elaborate or fancy methods. A believer doesn't need to go on a pilgrimage. I don't have to get on my knees and climb the stairs to some cathedral. I don't have to wait for a special conference or wait for periodical feasts to roll around or wait for a time of great revival. They're ordinary. God has provided them for us ordinary on a regular basis. The Lord provides us ordinary means to confirm our trust in Christ. Ordinary. To the outsider, these ordinary means are not valued and they seem foolish. In fact, I read in the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Like the nominal Christian, like the five foolish virgins. They can take it or leave it. And doesn't that say a lot about a person? Their souls are hollow. They don't think anything about God's ordinary means of grace. It means nothing to them. But the Lord chose simple things, common things, ordinary things, like human speech, air hitting the vocal cord to transmit the gospel, a piece of bread, a glass of wine, to confirm, to fortify, to enlighten our faith and our trust in Him, to provide us sure resources of comfort and sanctifying grace. Christ's presence in the means of grace. First Thessalonians 1.5, the apostle said, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I don't know, I don't think it's nearly enough, but when preaching is more than speaking or giving an explanation of the text, when that happens is when the Holy Spirit uses the preacher and the Word of God, and he sends, he sends it forth. He sends it forth. Then the preacher and preaching become powerful, penetrating instruments that are used by God in calling sinners and, and sanctifying and building up and strengthening the saints of God. There's a difference between reading a text or just telling a text and God using His Word build up his people he when he when God is present through the spirit to actually touch the minds and hearts of his people and the same is true of prayer prayer is more than saying words into the air or to be heard just to people when the spirit of God is present in fact, James says it has great power as it is working. When a righteous person fervently in faith besieges heaven. And you know what happens? It strengthens the faith of the one who's praying. Acts 4 is such a wonderful prayer after, or 5, I believe it is, after the. Peter and John have been arrested and released and they go back and they find the other disciples and they have a prayer meeting and the house is shaken but they pray to the sovereign God. And, you can see, and they're, they're, they're encouraged and they're strengthened, they're emboldened. And the same is true of the ordinances. Baptism is more than an outward rite where someone gets wet. By faith and baptism, a believer experiences physically what happens spiritually in salvation where they're buried in water and raised up again. And when we recall our baptism in faith, we're reminded that we're one in Christ because we're cleansed by His blood. We're united with Him in His death. And the same is to be said of the Lord's Supper. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Are we not participating? Is it not what we're doing? And by faith, Christ is among us spiritually. Now, as we do that, we're not looking to ourselves. We're not trusting our strength. We're looking to Christ and the cross. And we're looking to His faithfulness and not our own. And I think that's part of the examination when we examine ourselves. Because when I examine myself, I come up short every time. Every time. But I look to Christ. And the body, the, the, the bread, the body reminds me of the active obedience of my Lord. He obeyed the law of God. Every jot and tittle. And the wine, the blood, his passive obedience, that his, he died for sinners, his blood covers my sins. Now, before you can receive his supper, you must first receive him. You dare not come to his table correctly, rightly without first receiving the Lord Himself. And what does that mean? Well, it, it means that if you receive Him in faith, that you believe His Word, that you confess and repent of your sins, that you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and like Mary, you must be willing to give of yourself. You devote yourself to the Lord. Why do you do these things? Why, is that, why does it matter? Well, because you confessed that He's Christ. He's Lord. He's King. He's your Savior. That you absolutely believe His Word and His Word says that this is what you should do. That you love Him. You trust Him. You want to serve Him. And you realize that Christ alone is the resurrection and the life. We believe and confess that whoever believes in Him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Him shall never die. Do you believe this? Is that your confession in faith? Now hear this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can you call on the name of the Lord? I did not ask you, are you perfect? I did not ask you to set your life straight first. I ask you, can you call on the Lord? to confess your sins, to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and to come to Him. By the grace of God, you can. And that's what you're called to do. 
and ask Him to give you that desire to do those very things. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for Your Word. We're grateful that You have given us this ordinance out of love for us. That You knew You would not be here with us physically. That we would not see You with our eyes. We would not hear You with our ears. We would not touch You with our hands. But Lord, You have given us an ordinance. You would be with us spiritually. And every time we partake of this ordinance, that we would be um, communing with You spiritually as we take of the bread, as we take of the wine. We would know Your presence. We would know, Lord, of Your death, Your sacrifice on our behalf. We would be encouraged. We would be strengthened. We would be built up in the most holy faith. We would find grace, uh, Lord, for living, for worshiping, for carrying on. Bless your people, Lord, now as we uh, prepare to receive of this ordinance. And we pray that in doing so, that we would honor your name, that we would look to you in faith, that we would be thankful for providing us with this, uh, with this supper and that you would be praised. Forgive us of our sins. Draw us into a sacred nearness with yourself, I ask in your blessed and holy name. Amen. Stand now and we'll sing together hymn number 343.